and welcome to the Foodist Podcast. I'm Daria Rose. Today, I'm talking to James Clear, author of the new book, Atomic Habits, that comes out this week, October 16th. And for those of you who are not familiar with James's work, uh, he writes at jamesclear.com. And if you've been reading Summer Tomato for a while, you know that I refer to his work pretty regularly. Um, He writes about habits, behavior change, decision-making, and self-improvement. Now, I always learn something new, get some insight, get some reframe on these topics. You know, I've read a lot about, you know, pretty much all the books out there about um, behavior change and, and habit building. And what I really love about Atomic Habits is that it's probably the most practical guide. If you want to build a new habit, if you want to break a bad habit. He has a very straightforward and pretty easy to follow system to do that. And it's very practical. A lot of times it sounds great to, oh, just pick a trigger and pick a reward and you're going to magically create this new habit. But it's not always that simple. Um, There's a lot that goes on internally and externally that can derail you. And he really gets into the nitty gritty of how to deal with that. He speaks regularly at Fortune 500 companies. His work is used by the NFL, the NBA. And it's it's really a great resource for you, especially if you are looking to make behavior changes in your life. <laughs> um, so we have a wonderful conversation. And I hope you really enjoy James Clear. James, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, I don't know. How long? Maybe a couple of years, two or three years? Yeah, a few years. And you've been writing a book basically this whole time. Yeah, that's pretty true. Um, the book has been uh, three years, I think, from start to finish. Uh, I originally thought it was going to be two, which is classic you know, author overestimation. After a year in, I realized I'm going to need more time to research and write this. So I asked the publisher for an additional year and they very kindly gave it to me. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really happy with how it ended up. I, Although at every stage, it was like that. What's that thing? I think it's called Hofstetter's Law, where everything takes twice as long as you expect, even if you take this into account. And so it was basically, it was basically that at every stage. (laughs) Well, that's amazing. I want to congratulate you actually, because first of all, it's fantastic title and the cover is beautiful. Yeah. Thanks. I'm uh, I'm happy with how the packaging ended up. Um, you know, a lot of the time you don't get total say on all of that, but I was able to, they let me play a, a, a big role and we also just had great people working on it. Um, Pete Garceau was the designer who did the title and, uh, or the cover. And, uh, I was really happy with, with what, how it ended up. Yeah, me too. So I'm curious from your perspective, what, why this book? Hmm. Um, I think, well, there are two reasons. There are two answers. So the first answer is like a big picture one, like why habits at all? You know, why does this even matter? And I think there are, um, a couple ways to look at that. So the first is habits give us external results, right? Like they can help you lose weight or make more money or be more productive or reduce stress. And that's great. And that's usually what people talk about when they talk about like why they want to build a habit is for some external outcome. But habits are also like the method through which we kind of develop part of our self-image or uh, develop a sense of, of who we are. Um, so as you repeat a habit, it's kind of how you embody a particular identity, right? So like every day that you clean your room, you embody the identity of someone who's neat and organized. Or every time that you go to the gym, you embody the identity of someone who's fit. Or whenever you sit down to write for an hour, you embody the identity of a writer. And I <laughs> or think whenever you procrastinate for all, a year and then start writing. Yes, you embody, you embody the identity of a procrastinator. Um, so, 
but all of our behaviors throughout life, I think, do that. They all influence our what we think about ourselves. But habits, just by virtue of the fact that you repeat them again and again, they kind of build up a lot of evidence for who you are. They maybe take the lead or take the reins in kind of shaping your sense of self and, and what you represent. So that's like an internal reason, not just an external result for why habits are important. So that's the first answer. And the second answer is shorter and easier, which is that I felt like there were a lot of books that have been written about how habits work, but there weren't uh, there wasn't a good guide on how to change them. Mm. Uh, and so I've wanted to create something that was scientifically based, evidence based, but really a practical guide, you know, like a, here, here are some actual tools you can use in your toolbox for designing habits or breaking bad ones or strategies you can employ for uh, trying to shape life in the way that serves you rather than, you know, just kind of letting it happen to you. 100%. And that's why I was so excited about it. Cause yeah, I feel like most of, I, th- I feel like, first of all, we've read all the same books <laughs> and second there, but there hasn't been something that has compiled it in, into something practical that an average person can pick up and, and troubleshoot their own behaviors right. and, and goals. Um, so I'm so happy that you wrote this. Um, I don't think I mentioned it yet. The title is Atomic Habits and I would love to hear. So actually the idea, like the core principle of Atomic Habits that you described at the very beginning of the book. I was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, because I, and I, I'm going to quote you here. You say that habits are the compound interest of self-improvement. And I just love that idea so much. I think it's so important, um, especially for health, which is what my listeners are mostly going to be interested in. Not only is it critical to understand this idea, but it's also very counterintuitive in your daily life. When we interact with small actions, we don't see big results right away. So it's very difficult for people to really internalize the lesson. And now there's a whole book about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about um, that. Um, and I, I mean, you know, what you're referencing here is like a crucial point, right? That habits are, they're really easy to dismiss on any given day. Uh, you know, like what is the difference between eating a burger and fries or eating a salad for lunch? It's not really a whole lot on that day. Like the scale is the same. Your body looks basically the same in the mirror. It's only once your choices compound over two or five or 10 years that it becomes like very apparent how important those slightly better decisions or slightly improved habits are on a daily basis or the cost of a choice that's slightly worse. Uh, and that becomes really obvious to us a decade later. But in the moment, it's very easy to overlook. Yeah. So can you explain? I mean, I'm not sure everybody is the type of geek that reads personal finance books and knows how compound interest works and how it applies to habits specifically. Sure. So I think it's a good metaphor for understanding what it's like to build a habit and how they make a difference over the long run. So the same way that money can multiply through compound interest, the effects of your habits can multiply over time. And when you see a a compound interest curve, it's not like a linear straight line, like going up at a 45 degree angle where you put in a little bit of work or a little bit of money and you get a little bit of results. It's more like that hockey stick growth curve where it's very low and slow in the beginning. You don't really have much to show for it. Same way as, you know, like eating a salad for lunch rather than burger and fries or, um, you know, like what's the difference between studying Spanish for an hour tonight and not studying at all. It isn't really that much. You haven't learned the language either way. It doesn't feel like you really did anything. So, um, in the beginning, the curve is very small and the effects are very small, but as you start to add it up over time, that compound interest starts to accrue. And then eventually you kind of hit this inflection point where the curve just takes off. Uh, and this is a hallmark of any compounding process, which is all the greatest returns are delayed. 
And um, so you need some patience. And the way that I uh, describe it in the book, I use this kind of metaphor of heating up an ice cube. And it's kind of like you're in a cold room, you know, it's like 25, 26 degrees. You can see your breath. You have this ice cube sitting in the middle of the table and you start to heat the room up slowly. And it's 26, 27, 28, 29. And still the ice cube is there. There's like nothing to, to show for it yet. 30, 31. And then you get to 32 degrees and it's like this one degree shift, no different than all the other shifts that came before it, but there's this phase transition. And I think often the process habits are not exactly like that, but the process is often like that where you show up and you work for three months or six months or a year. And you still feel like, man, I still got this ice cube on the table. Like I don't have much to show for all this work I've been putting in, but complaining about working for three months or six months or whatever, and not getting the results you want is kind of like complaining about heating up an ice cube from 25 to 31 degrees. And it hasn't melted yet. It's not that the work was being wasted. It's just being stored, you know, like you have to continue to bank work and put in your reps. Mm -hmm. And then eventually you hit that tipping point or you get to the, the compounding part of the curve and things start to fall in order. And, um, because it's, you don't see very much in the beginning, it's really easy to overlook. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like there's even a, a more meta version of that, which is when you become the person who starts treating your habits this way and you start flossing your teeth and you start going to the gym and Mm. you start eating more salads, then your life sort of becomes this compound improvement as well. So even, you know, as each of those habits is building up, you know, improving your dental health and improving your nutrition um, separately together, they come together and compound even more. It's kind of like um, two waves in a lake, you know, and like it, they're coming toward each other. And then all of a sudden, if they hit in the right way, the the crest is like doubly high. Um, and so, yeah, your, your habits kind of like bleed into each other and um, build on top of each other. And this is another reason why I chose the phrase atomic habits for the book. It's not the the word atomic can mean like three different things. One, it can be small, like an atom or tiny. And that is a big part of my philosophy. Habits should be small and easy to do. But the second meaning of atomic is that it's the fundamental unit of a larger system. And so like atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds and so on. And just as you just mentioned, habits can build on each other. That's like a key component here is you're not just making a single 1% change. You're trying to make a variety of easy changes that are all kind of organized towards the same goal. And eventually they start to build up and tip the scales in your favor. And then the, the third and final meaning of atomic is that it's the source of immense energy or power. And so I think if you add all three of those meanings together, you sort of understand the narrative arc of the book, which is if you make small and easy changes and you layer them on top of each other, like units in a larger system, then you can end up with a powerful result in the long run. Boom. Love it. Um, So I got the impression from reading your work that building systems and habits is something that comes pretty naturally to you. Mm. Um, So I was wondering, is that true? And um, if so, or if not, have you ever really struggled with behavior change or procrastination or any other things that trip up most people? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I definitely struggle. Um, and I'll give you some examples of that in a second, but I do think your, your first question is probably true. Uh, I, I am maybe inclined towards that type of stuff. Like, uh, maybe I would describe myself as like an optimizer or I enjoy, you know, tweaking things or improving things like that. And I don't know where that came from. I'm not sure if that's like uh, genetic or personality based. And I just kind of like gravitate toward those type of things. Or if, um, 
as I've slowly learned that that's how I make progress on things, I've become like more inclined to do more and more of that. Just like this progress kind of mounts up and I get motivated to do it. And the same way, but yeah, way. <laughs> well, and I shouldn't, I, I, I think there's probably both, right? Like I, I think there is probably yeah. some genetic component there, but you can, and I talk about this later in the book when I talk about the Goldilocks rule, but you can kind of motivate people to work harder on that or to become more of an optimizer, to stay engaged in a particular task if you're able to keep people on the cusp of their ability. So like video games are the ultimate example of this, because if you're playing a video game and you're struggling on a particular level, they'll give you more power ups or more rubies or coins or whatever to make it easier for you to make progress. If you're really killing it and doing great on a level, they'll start to throw more challenges your way and slow you down. And the whole idea is for the game to keep you right on the edge of your ability where you're like, always making progress, but still maximally challenged to stay engaged. And um, it's harder to do that in daily life, but there are examples of it. Like some of the most successful reading programs in schools, they optimize the type of things students are reading for their particular grade level or their particular ability. And so if you can keep kids right on the edge of their, of that challenge, then they stay more engaged and tend to to commit more to the the system or the process. Yeah, because if it's too easy, then you get bored, and if it's too hard, then you get frustrated and give up. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So so there is a way to do that, even if you aren't naturally inclined. But um, but I think I probably am wired that way a little bit. And then uh, the answer to your second question about like what do I struggle with? There have been a variety of habits over time, but the one right now that's giving me fits is. Um, I'm pretty good. I have this like personal rule where I won't cheat myself on sleep. And so I'll, I'll make sure that I sleep eight hours, but I struggle with power, like a power down habit or like when I'm going to shut off. So mm. usually it'll get to like nine or 10 PM and I'll like get this kind of second wind. I'm like, well, I could do like an hour of work right now or something. And so then I'll like get in and then all of a sudden like two or three hours go by and then it's midnight or one and I haven't gone to bed yet. Well, if I'm not going to cheat myself on sleep, I'm not getting up till nine, but I prefer to wake up at six or seven. So I end up sleeping in more often than I would like. And that's one that I, I haven't managed to mitigate yet. Or <laughs> It's tough to make yourself ramp down when you're in the middle of a book. Yes, launch. true. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was wondering, I mean, so at the beginning you talk about, or in the introduction, you talk about getting hit in the face of the baseball bat. Um, it is a crazy story. It is a crazy story. It was, it was pretty crazy. You're to go so through. lucky to be yeah. alive. <laughs> that is insane. Yeah. I, um, I tell the whole story in the introduction, obviously, but it was essentially, I, I, it was an accident. I got hit in the face of this baseball bat and it was very serious. I shattered both eye sockets and broke my nose and broke the home bone behind my nose, which is very difficult to break because it's deep inside your skull and had to be air cared to the hospital, multiple seizures. Uh, I was in a coma overnight and it was just, it was a long road back. I mean, the first, uh, the first physical therapy session I was practicing, like walking in a straight line and, um, essentially what I am linking and bring it back to the concepts in the book. It was the first time in my life where I really had to practice the idea of just getting 1% better or trying to make a small improvement. Now I wouldn't have said that at the time. I didn't have a language for it, but essentially my hand was forced, you know, like I, I couldn't just flip a switch and magically be better. And, um, gradually through doing that and finding little ways to improve, I kind of felt like I regained control in my life a little bit and, uh, and made progress year over year and eventually ended up having a good baseball career because of it and made progress in school and so on. But, um, it was really that experience, that personal experience that gave me the, 
I guess, practical background or application to now write about a lot of the things that philosophically I think about or research or so on. Um, so I kind of, this book is sort of a merger of the two, right? Like my personal experience building small habits and uh, the research and writing that I've done around why they work and how they work. Yeah. It seemed like a little bit, this may, might be your uh, superpower origin story. Maybe. I don't know. Hopefully people <laughs> will enjoy it. It seems like the trajectory you've taken then is you sort of figured out that you're good at this and it's interesting to you and you've started helping other people try to replicate this system because it's basically a a system you've created. And now you work with people, correct? Right. So uh, most of the time when I'm working with people, it's usually with companies uh, or organizations, but um, I have done some individual work before. But uh, what I really enjoy most is writing and sharing the ideas with a broad audience, because um, my thing is I want to try to reach as many people as possible. Uh, And I don't think that everything I write is going to be life changing for uh, each person that reads it, but hopefully it'll give people you know, I, I think it'd be you'd be hard pressed to find someone who read the book and wouldn't find at least one idea that they could implement um, or utilize. If that's true, then that seems like a worthwhile endeavor to me, and I'll try to spread it around and share the ideas with others. Yeah, it's cool. So, so I have a similar path. Like again, I told you, I am also very geeky about habit change, and it it came pretty natural to me. I have my theories about my own origin story that <laughs> I won't go into, but. Um, Right. And I, and I do the same thing. I I've now like moved into writing and and working with people and trying to help people recreate these systems. And where I am at this point in my career is I'm constantly wondering where other people are going to get stuck. Mm. As I was reading your book, I was like, well, isn't somebody going to get stuck there? So I wanted to ask you about a few things that you actually did a great job of addressing. The first one that I want to mention is the the difference between goals versus systems. This comes up a lot in health. People tend to get obsessed with numbers and very particular outcomes. And I've seen it derail so many people. So I'd love for you to talk about that and why it's such a problematic strategy to get focused very much on a specific goal. I first came across this like uh, dichotomy of systems versus goals through uh, something Scott Adams mentioned, the um, cartoonist behind Dilbert. It's a really great blog post and I will link to it. Oh, there you go. All right. So (laughs) he's a little more um, anti-goals than I am. Like, so just first of all, my background, I was very goal oriented for a long time. Like I would set goals for the grades I wanted to get in school or how much weight I wanted to lift in the gym or what I wanted to happen to my business and like growth rates and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, sometimes I would hit those targets and achieve those goals, but then a lot of the time I wouldn't. And eventually I turned around after doing this for like a decade and I was like, okay, I'm setting goals, but like, I'm not, you know, sometimes they happen, but clearly this is not the thing that actually determines whether I make progress. And, um, so I think that goals are useful for one thing and that is clarity. I think they're useful for setting a sense of direction and figuring out, okay, this is where I'm going to focus my attention. But after you've done that, it's almost always better to like put the goal on the shelf, metaphorically speaking, and focus on the process and the system instead. And I think that's really hard to do. It's definitely hard to do with uh, health. And I think one of the reasons is because we live in a very outcome focused society. So if you take like the news, for example, something is not going to be a news story until usually it's an outcome or a result. It's like the play becomes a Broadway hit or, um, you know, you're never going to see a news story. That's like woman eats chicken and salad for lunch today. It's only going to be a story after like six months <laughs> when it's like woman loses a hundred pounds, you know? So this is right. just magnified by social media because now we're surrounded by pictures of everybody's results. 
And, um, you know, when you see before and after photos of weight loss stuff and transformations on Instagram every day, you, I think we naturally start to overvalue the outcome, overvalue the goal and think that it's all about the end goal and the result, the big, uh, achievement rather than the process that precedes it. And one of the consequences of that is that we fail to realize that a, achieving a goal only really only changes your life for the moment. Um, so like if you, as an example, I have in the book, say you get really motivated and you have like a messy room, right? Your garage is a mess or your bedroom's a mess and you get motivated to clean it up. Well, if you do that for a couple hours, you'll have a clean room now, but if you don't change the sloppy and messy habits that led to a dirty room in the first place, then three weeks from now, you'll turn around and your room will be a mess again. And this happens all the time. <laughs> Right. Please explain that to my husband. <laughs> People think that like, oh, I just need to, if I could just get skinny, then I'd be set, right? Then I'd be free. But it's not like habits are not a finish line to cross. They're a lifestyle to live. And I think if we, um, we think that what we need is the results to change. We think we need the room to be clean, but really what we need are for the habits and the processes behind those results to be adjusted. And then the outcomes come naturally, right? Like a clean room, it just follows naturally if you have clean habits. Um, and so I think that our shift here is from looking at uh, outcomes or habits as a goal to achieve and more as a process or a lifestyle to build. And once you can make that shift, then it becomes a little easier to maybe take the pressure off yourself a little bit too. You know, like a lot of the time weight loss is a classic example of this. People are like, oh, I want to lose 20 pounds in four months. And then you get four months in and they've lost eight pounds and they feel terrible because they didn't hit their goal, which is absurd because they're making progress, but we just didn't hit this arbitrary goal that we set in the beginning. It's yeah. It's really tough for people to let go of that. And, and in that, in that mm. example, there was two goals right there, you know, there was the time and the, and the weight goal. And, um, yeah, so I, I guess, I guess it's just sort of mentally, you have to recognize that when you, when you see yourself fixated on a goal, like, okay, that's fine, but what's going to get me there? And if I'm doing those things, I think, I think maybe it gets a little ambiguous because people are like, well, I'm not sure that the things I'm doing are going to get me to my goal. But you, at, at that point, you sort of have to start trusting the system. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, and it's also, uh, it's not a one-time choice, right? I like to use the phrase like, no decision is permanent. Um, you know, like people, they act like, well, what if I start this diet and it doesn't lead me to, you know, my goal or whatever? Well, it's like, well, you can change, right? Like you can, you can adjust. It's not, no decision is permanent. And I think sometimes we need to be a little more flexible with that. Yeah. So that's one piece of the systems versus goals thing. The other thing is that, um, inherently goals kind of create this like either or dichotomy in your mind where like either you achieve the goal and you're a success or you don't and you fail. And it's such a narrow version of like what happiness or success is. And there are so many things that could happen along that journey that could be great outcomes. But uh, when you're so fixated on the goal, you don't allow yourself to maybe enjoy some of those uh, spontaneous things that arise uh, that are also enjoyable and wonderful. You know, like if you're so focused on getting in shape and losing weight, you can easily overlook the fact that you're building new friendships at the gym and getting to meet new people that are interesting and exciting and whatever. And um if you don't make it just about the number on the scale, it, sometimes it's easier to enjoy some of those uh, side benefits as well. Really good point. Life is important to enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> Easy to forget when you're trying to fit in those jeans or whatever. Wonderful. So another place I feel like people get stuck a lot, and especially in health, um, we've mentioned it a little bit, but I, I kind of want to circle back 
is that idea of the personal identity and personal narrative. Mm. It's so easy to get stuck in, well, somebody like me can't Mm. do this or doesn't do something like that. Like we, in my family, we eat rich foods and we don't know how to, you know, vegetables are, I just always feel like I'm deprived if I'm eating vegetables or there's, you know, we have, we carry around these stories. It, it, It holds people up a lot. And so I, you had some really good advice on on how to sort of start to break those stories and not necessarily break them, but redirect them um, in a way that can actually get you to both, you know, all your values at once. You right. know, it doesn't have to be health versus family. Like that's a horrible choice. <laughs> you know, you have to sort of get get to the right place. Yeah, I think so. The word you use there, redirect, I think is a good one um, because you're not what we're really talking about here is identity change in some way. But you're not looking to like rip your identity in half. You know, you're not looking to become someone completely new. It's kind of like sometimes I equate it to like retouching a painting. You're just looking to like upgrade and expand or improve or adjust, um, pull out some of the the more beneficial points of your identity. And so I mentioned earlier that habits are how you embody an identity. And I think one way to to think about this, like the connection between self-image and identity and beliefs and habits and behaviors is that it's kind of like every action you take is a vote for the type of person that you want to become or the person that you believe that you are. And as you do something, you start to cast votes for that type of your identity. So, you know, if you kick a soccer ball one time, you don't think that you're a soccer player. But if you show up every afternoon and kick a soccer ball around for an hour at practice, then at some point, six months or a year from now, you kind of cross this invisible threshold and you're like, oh, I guess I'm a soccer player. And it's sort of like that with each habit. You know, it's like you show up at the gym and you're like, oh, well, maybe I'm the type of person who works out or you play guitar for an hour and you're like, oh, maybe I'm the type of person who practices music after work or something like that. And, um, like each, each habit is a little suggestion. And if you make enough suggestions, if you cast enough votes, then you have evidence, you have proof of being that kind of person. And this I think is really important because often when people talk about identity or, uh, some kind of change in mindset, they'll say things like fake it till you make it, but fake it till you make it is actually a little different than what I'm talking about here, because fake it till you make it asks you to believe something without having evidence for it. And there's a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. It's called delusion. And if you, if you try to hold on to that for long enough, then your brain doesn't like it. It kind of falls apart. But with small habits, you have this evidence to root the, the identity in. And this is one reason why I think small behaviors can be so meaningful, even if they don't necessarily get you the result you're looking for, like in the moment, you know, like take something like um, doing five pushups. Well, a lot of the time people would be like, well, who cares about doing five pushups? Like that's not going to get me in shape. But if your kids are sick or if you're really busy for work and you're like, you know, I've been on the plane for six hours and I just got to the hotel and I was exhausted and all I could do was five pushups and then I collapsed on a bed. But at least I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And so even though it wasn't, sometimes it's not about the external result that a habit gets you. It's about reinforcing that you're that kind of person. So I have a, a friend who's a writer. And he, um, his habit is to write one sentence each day. And there are plenty of days where he'll write a full page or work on a chapter or whatever. But on the really crazy days where things are like totally hairy and he just can't get it all done, he can still write one sentence and like reaffirm the fact that he is a writer. And I think that that counts for a lot in the long run. I hear this in psychology a lot. It comes up um, the action comes first, not the feeling. I think that's right. And now once the identity is built, it kind of becomes this feedback loop. It's like a two-way street, right? So you, 
once you believe I'm bad at math, then someone hands you a math problem and you're like, oh, why try? I'm bad at that. Or once you believe, you know, uh, I have a sweet tooth, then you start, you know, coming up with all these justifications for why you should eat. You know, if somebody has a dessert after dinner or whatever, like, oh, I'll get one too because I have a sweet tooth. And so it starts to become this like self-perpetuating loop where your actions reinforce the identity that you have. But if you want to change that, I think, um, I think that's, that's where the key is the, the point that you just made, which is that if you're looking to change your behavior, the action comes first habits are the, or if you're looking to change your beliefs, the action comes first habits are the best lever we have for adjusting our beliefs and self-image. I love it. Yeah. Cause when you're sitting around just waiting to feel like somebody that you don't believe you are, it's never going to happen. And like, it might happen like once a year, twice a year. You might be like, I'm so motivated today. I'm going to work out even though I, I'm not the workout type. Probably but even less than that, wait. you know, like having yeah. an epiphany is so rare. Um, it right. kind of reminds me how people say like, oh, you should only work on things you're passionate about, which is great as a theory, but nobody ever becomes passionate about something just by sitting on the couch and thinking about it. You develop passion by experimenting with something or gaining experience somewhere, having a little bit of sacrifice and putting, you know, time in. I mean, the, the passion comes as a result of the investment in the, the behavior, or the, the area. And I think that the belief is often that way too. Like beliefs follow the action. So powerful. So anybody who's interested in this topic has probably also read The Power of Habit and uh, by Charles Duhigg. It's a, it's a great book. Uh, I talk about it a lot. Um, in that book, he talks about a habit loop. And you talk about it too, but you actually added something to his habit loop, yeah. which I thought was really, really insightful. Um, and I want to talk about it. So in his habit loop, he, he uses, uh, he says, there's a cue, you know, some sort of reminder to do the action. Then there's the action or the response. And then there has to be a reward that reinforces the habit. And then that's how your neural circuitry works. And you create this, this automatic behavior. You added, there's a feeling. Yeah. So uh, whatever the trigger is, um, and sure is to remind everyone, they can be internal or external. They can be a feeling you have from, you know, being tired or hungry, or they can be an external trigger that you see a ad for something, or you look on the counter and there's some food there and you want to eat it or something like that. But the fact that you added that this, you translate this in your, in your mind and in your body to a feeling. And this insight I think is really, really powerful because, and then you, you expound on this a little bit later in the book where you talk about how, what you end up doing, your response to the trigger is actually dependent right. on how you interpret it. It actually depends on what that feeling is and the different, like the same trigger or cue can create different risk feeling responses in different people and even yeah. different in you <laughs> if you set up the system in a different way. So can you talk about that, um, how you can interpret these feelings differently and how it's not necessarily objective? The Q routine reward model, uh, which is kind of based off of BF Skinner's work at Stanford in the 1930s, where it was kind of like stimulus response reward. And that, that was part of the whole behavioral psychology movement, which is a big, there were kind of a two, there have kind of been two big psychology movements in the last hundred years or so. And behavioral psychology was the first one. And, uh, scientists found that it's really effective. You can shape a lot of behavior if you have the right cue and the right reward and you link them together. But then there was the second movement of uh, the cognitive psychologists uh, starting around like the 1950s and coming into the modern day. And they found that, oh, okay, well, external cues and rewards, like those shape behavior, but they're also like these internal moods and feelings and beliefs. And those seem to have a big impact on our behavior as well. 
And so my hope with this four stage model that I laid out was to integrate those two kind of movements and give us a one cohesive framework for understanding how behavior is shaped. And, um, the second stage that I added, so it's the four stages are cue, craving, response, reward. And usually when we talk about a craving, people think about like craving a donut or craving a cigarette or something like that. I'm actually using the word in a little broader sense of like what you desire to do based on how you interpret the cue. And, um, the way that you can think about this is that pretty much all human behavior is uh, predictive in some way. We we feel like life is reactive, but we're kind of actually endlessly predicting what to do in the next moment. So you um, and your prediction, as you mentioned, it can differ between people. So you can imagine uh, having a pack of cigarettes on the table and one person walks in who's not a smoker. And to them, it's just like, well, it's just a pack of cigarettes doesn't mean anything. And to another person who smokes a pack a day, it like sparks this urge or this craving to smoke. So they interpret the same cue in totally different ways. But the question that I had actually, as I was coming up with this framework is, well, how come the same person can interpret the same cue in different ways, depending on when it happens? You know, like, uh, you could imagine, um, like, let's say you have a loaf of bread sitting on the counter and you walk in in the morning and you haven't eaten anything and you're hungry. And so you're like, oh, loaf of bread's there. I should make some toast. And so you put the, you know, cue, you see the loaf of bread craving, you predict that I should make some toast or it will taste good response. You put the bread in the toaster reward. It tastes good and you enjoy it. But you can just as easily imagine a different scenario where let's say you just finished eating dinner and you walk in you see a loaf of bread on the counter and you're like, well, now I'm stuffed. I'm full. I don't want to eat anything. So same cue, the bread was there either way, but a completely different response based on your current state, based on how you interpret the cue. And I think that that's actually a crucial part of the process to understand. And it also sheds insight on a couple other things that are really compelling, uh, I think, arguments for how human behavior works. So the first is perceived value is what motivates us to act. Actual value is what motivates us to repeat. So the perceived value, the image of, oh, a, a piece of toast will be tasty is what gets you to act. It's not it sounds uh, nuanced, but it's not actually the toast itself that gets you to do anything because you haven't had it yet. You don't have it until after you eat it. Same way for like buying something on Amazon. You don't actually buy the product. Like if you're going to buy a book, you don't actually buy the book. You can't because you don't have it yet. What you buy is the image the book creates in your mind. You buy your expectation of how useful the book will be or how interesting it'll be. And so the perceived value motivates you to take action. The perceived value being the craving in this case, the second stage, the action, I press the buy button and check out. And then the reward is that you get the book afterward. So um, I think adding that second stage sheds a little bit of light on what actually motivates us to take any action. And then the second thing that it does that I think is very clarifying is it tells us what is rewarding. Like if you just have Q routine reward, why, why is something rewarding? Is it, well, it's not because it's a Q like that's, that's something different. The Q signaled, uh, something it's rewarding because it satisfies the craving. <laughs> It's right. reward, rewarding because it fulfills your expectation that you had before you acted. And um, that, I think, sheds some additional light for whether it's product designers or um, nutritionists or just an individual looking to build better habits. It sheds some additional light on why we find certain things rewarding and what we're actually looking for when we take an action or perform a habit. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes it's not even necessarily reward so much as relief, you know, yeah. like, like the word satisfying, because, you know, if you talk to a binge eater, for example, 
they don't really want to binge. Mm. <laughs> it's not that it's just, they have this very strong urge. And once they've eaten all the food, the urge is gone. And that is relief. And, but they feel disgusting. They're not happy. Like they're not glad about it. Um, but it's just satisfying that. In many cases, especially once you get toward more like addictive type of behaviors, uh, it's the behaviors performed less because of the reward and more because of the desire to satisfy the craving or to relieve the, yeah, the feeling that they have the relieve that urge of desire, that compulsion. Yeah. That's when dopamine goes crazy. Right. Right. (laughs) And that, and all of that, actually, this was another reason why I ended up uh, adding that second stage and doing four stages. If you map dopamine now, habits are not purely about dopamine. I should say that that's just, it's just like one part of the process. But if you map the dopamine spike that occurs, um, the spike occurs after you perceive the cue and before you take the action. Once a habit is built, you know, like gamblers will get this wave of dopamine when they see dice or cocaine addicts will get a wave of, uh, of desire when they see cocaine after they take the action and actually take it dopamine levels return to baseline because they, it matches their expectation. They thought it was going to be really amazing and then it was enjoyable. And so they're, they're just neutral. But my point there is just that you can actually scientifically map that second stage. You see the cue, then there's a craving, then you take the response and then there's a reward. Yeah, it's super interesting. And and it's it's easy to forget lost in all of this is that, you know, when, when we get so fixated on, on on satisfying our craving and we're we're being totally driven by our dopamine pathways, that real satisfaction isn't from the dopamine, like you just said. It's actually from a different molecule called serotonin. <laughs> and um that that's a completely different part of the brain. And that's you know, I think there's a very interesting play there where you can set up these habits and take advantage of the dopamine system to be actful and to, but to create a life that actually is rich in serotonin. So another really, uh, unique and, and I think very powerful insight into your method, um, that you mentioned is something called habit stacking. Can you talk about what that is and why it's so powerful? Sure. So this is, a, I think, a great strategy for building a new habit. And I first learned about it from BJ Fogg, who's a professor at Stanford. And he he kind of has his tiny method, tiny habits methodology. And this is kind of part of that. But the idea is, if you're looking to build a new habit, you need some kind of cue or reminder for in, uh, inserting that into your life. And it's often very effective to use your previous habits or your current behaviors as the cue for a new one. So for example, Um, let's say you want to build the habit of meditating. You could say, well, each morning I make a cup of coffee. So the habit stack would be after I make a cup of coffee, I will meditate for 60 seconds. Or if you wanted to, um, like say you wanted to, to start reading more consistently. Um, so if you want to build a habit of reading, you could say, well, what do I do each morning? Well, my morning routine right now is I wake up, I turn off my alarm, I make my bed and I take a shower. Then you could say, okay, I'm going to insert this new behavior into that routine. So I'll wake up, I'll make my bed. Um, I'll put a book on my pillow and then I'll take a shower. And so then when you get in bed at night, there's a book waiting for you to read. And so there's kind of, it's just this idea of like making it very specific where you're going to stack a behavior in. And I'll say two little caveats about that, that make it, I think more applicable or easier for it to actually work. So the first is it works better if your cue, if your current routine is very specific, like for a long time, um, I wanted to build this push-up habit around lunchtime. And so I, my initial habit stack was when I take a break for lunch, I'll do 10 push-ups. But actually that wasn't as specific as it should have been. Cause it could have been like, well, am I going to do it like the beginning of the lunch break or the end? Am I going to do it in my office or somewhere else? Like it wasn't super clear. And so I ended up changing it to when I close my laptop 
for lunch, I will do 10 push-ups. And so it was a very specific thing. And the action of closing the laptop became a reminder to do the push-ups. The second thing is that it often works best if you're like the timing or when you ask yourself to do the habit is an important thing. And it often works best if the habits are related. So there was actually a study done. uh, I was just looking at it yesterday where they asked people to build a flossing habit and they, they had two different cohorts. The first cohort would, they would take a shower and then they were supposed to floss and they would brush their teeth and do the rest of their routine. And the second cohort took a shower and then brushed their teeth and then flossed after brushing. So one floss before one flossed after, but the group that did it before the trigger was after I finished my shower, I should floss my teeth. But you know, there's kind of some other stuff that needs to happen there. Like you need to dry off. And then the the shower isn't like directly connected to flossing in any way, although they both happen in the bathroom, but with toothbrushing, you're already, you're like doing your dental care right then. Right. So you brush your teeth, you put the toothbrush down, you pick the floss up. And that's actually what they found was that the group that stacked the habit on top of toothbrushing was more likely to be successful because it was like a more relevant habit or closer or easier to remind themselves what to do. So where you insert new routines, um, it can, it can make a difference depending on how relevant the, the current habit is or the cue is to the new thing that you're trying to stack in. Right. And this goes back to the, your, your idea to make it obvious, right? Make it so that, because I think that's the issue we get into. Like by definition, habits are automatic, right? They're automatic behaviors that mm. you don't think about very much. And so the challenge when you're trying to build a new one or break a bad one is to bring it to your attention enough that you can actually change it. Right. And um, when it's something, when you're trying to create a trigger that, that's unrelated or a cue that's unrelated, it's just a lot more challenging. I remember once I, <laughs> when I was trying to build a mindful eating habit, I would set like a reminder on my iPhone, like, oh, it's noon. Remember to eat mindfully. Like, when did I always exactly stop my right at, at noon? Exactly and then, noon yeah, yeah. And, and like my food happens to be ready at this exact moment, you know, and I would just forget, yeah. even though I had this reminder, it wasn't until I came up with a completely different system where basically what I ended up doing was scrapping, trying to eat mindfully and just scheduling one meal every day where I just mm. did it. <laughs> like at breakfast, I eat, my, I eat my breakfast mindfully um, and I turn off everything. And that was just so much more effective because the tri- I was trying to put, basically put a trigger before something that wasn't related to it and it doesn't work. So when you're stacking habits, it's something important to keep in mind. I mean, so you bring up an important point there too, uh, like a larger meta point, which is you need to be willing to experiment a little bit. Um, you know, like there, you have to have some philosophy of self-experimentation. There's a lot of the time. I think people, there are a lot of good ideas out there. There's, there's a lot of good advice, but you have to be willing to massage it enough to fit and work for your life and not expect the very first iteration to work out perfectly because the best advice in the world, if you don't have a willingness to experiment, it's kind of useless. Um, and so I think that your example there of, oh, I tried it this way. It didn't work out. So I tried it another way and that would end up being more effective. That's, that's just instructive as a larger general lesson. Um, but yeah, so the, you know, we talked about those four stages, cue, craving, response, and reward. And so from those four, I came up with what I called the four laws of behavior change. And it's just a simple way of thinking about how to shape your habits and how to design them. And so the first one for the cue, you want to make your habits obvious. The more obvious the cues are, the easier it'll be to remember to do the right thing. Cool. Why don't you just go through them all? Because <laughs> they're, they're, so, sure. they're so wonderful. So for the cue, you want to make it obvious. For the craving, you want to make it attractive. The more ha- the more attractive your habits appear to you, uh, the more you perceive them to be valuable, the more likely you are to do it. 
for the response, you want to make it easy, the more convenient and easy your habits are, the more likely you are to do them. And then for the reward, you want to make it satisfying. And so those four, make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. Those are kind of these four laws that you can use for creating a good habit. And if you want to break a bad habit, you can just invert the four laws. So instead of make it obvious, you want to make your bad habits invisible. Um, instead of making your uh, habits attractive for a good habit, you want to make it unattractive, make it difficult, make it unsatisfying. And uh, the more that you can do that, uh, the easier it'll be to stay away from the behaviors that you're you're trying to get to fade away. I love it. So so simple and so actionable. Um, one, one thing I did want to ask you about though is, um, and it's sort of related to what we were just talking about, about figuring out what works for you. It almost seems like in order to like, let's say you have these sets of, a set of habits you want to create, like you want to start being more physically active. You want to eat better, whatever you want, better study habits. It seems like almost like you need a set of meta habits in order to, like for instance, you, you gave the example in your book of making it harder to watch TV. Like you come home from work or whatever, and you really want to start writing the great American novel, but you're tired. And so you, you plop down in front of the TV and you recommend, um, maybe taking the, the batteries out of the remote in order to make it harder for you to do that. And part of me was going like, if somebody really loves TV, are they actually going to take the batteries out of the remote? Cause that's a separate habit that is not very, doesn't sound very rewarding anyway. That's a good point. So a lot of these habits and like, uh, think about the one I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago about if you want to build a reading habit, uh, set a book on your pillow each morning. So I think that the reward is somewhat contingent on like a mindset shift or buying in to this idea. So like if you wake up in the morning and you put a book on your pillow, that is a habit in itself. You make the bed, you put the book on the pillow, but what is the reward for it? Well, you kind of need to feel like you're making progress. You kind of need to feel like, Oh, I'm priming the environment to make it easier for me to um, do the thing I want to do, which in this case is read or for taking the batteries out of the remote control. Again, you need to think about it as, Oh, I'm priming the environment to be the type of person I want to be. And if you can see it that way, then you can find that rewarding. But if you don't, then there's often very little that's enjoyable about it. And this is really common for habits that I would call like habits of avoidance. So things like I don't want to drink alcohol for 30 days, or I don't want to spend money on Amazon today. Or, um, I don't want to, uh, yeah, just a variety of examples of things that you're trying to avoid. So in order to do that successfully, uh, you often have to invert the habit and like flip it on its head a little bit so that you can figure out a way to be satisfied. So I had a, a reader who did this. He and his wife wanted to, uh, not go out to eat at restaurants as often. They wanted to not eat out as much, save some money, cook their own meals, eat healthier. But when they thought about doing that, that habit just seemed unsatisfying to them. It was like, well, all we're doing is just kind of resisting temptation. It's like, we want to go out to eat, but then we're going to decide not to. So the way to make a habit like that satisfying is to find an alternative method, kind of like a back door for enjoying it. So they opened up a savings account and labeled it trip to Europe. And then each time they didn't go out to eat and they stayed home and cooked, they would transfer $50 from their account over to the, the savings fund for the trip. And so it's just a small way to feel like, well, we didn't get to go out to eat, but we do get to see this like vacation fund build up. We get the, the immediate enjoyment of that. And often if you have some kind of external reinforcer like that, it can be enough to get you to follow through on the thing that is otherwise kind of unsatisfying in the moment. I would also recommend taking a cooking class <laughs> if your food's better. <laughs> 
your skills yeah. are better. And so you have like further reason to enjoy it. Right. Exactly. Like if you're, I mean, if you're a terrible cook, then it's like, well, why would I cook for myself? Because then, you know, I don't feel like it's going to be enjoyable anyway. Right. It's not going to be as good as the, as the restaurant. Right. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, I feel enlightened. <laughs> good. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. It was wonderful to talk to you. Um, do you have any part? Well, for when did the book come out? Uh, so atomic habits launches on October 16th and, um, Boom. yeah, I'm really excited about it. If you, uh, if you'd like to check it out and learn more about it, you can just go to atomichabits.com. Cool. Thank you so much, James. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the foodist podcast. I'm Daria Rose. And if you're interested in upgrading your own health style, learning how to get healthy and lose weight without dieting and without all of the suffering that it brings, then head over to my website, Summer Tomato, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. When you sign up, you'll get a free starter kit that'll teach you the basics of how to start changing the way you think about food, health, and weight loss. You'll also get a free chapter from my book, Foodist, called The Myth of Willpower that explains the science behind why the no pain, no gain mantra of the weight loss industry is the absolute worst approach to getting healthy. So come over to Summer Tomato and sign up. We have a fantastic community and we would love, love, love to have you. Thanks for